Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayami Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, April 8th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the Israeli bombing of the Palestinian region of Gaza and neighboring Lebanon over the last several days. Tennessee Republican lawmakers have expelled two African-American state representatives from their seats at the Capitol in Nashville. We'll have details on that as well. Burkina Faso in West Africa has removed French military and diplomatic influence in their country and is looking to the Russian Federation for security assistance. And South African Communist Party and African National Congress leader Chris Honey was martyred 30 years ago uh, this weekend. In the second hour, we look in depth at the circumstances and actual proceedings in Nashville that resulted in the removal of two young African-American men from their positions as state representatives in Tennessee. Finally, we pay tribute to Paul L. Robeson Sr., whose 125th posthumanist birthday is being celebrated this month. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Bozi Boziana and the Anti-Shock uh, this is from an album entitled Ba Bikilo Bilingue and Bongo Ya Quan Tete. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. That was uh, the music of Bozi Boziana and Anti-Shock. And uh, we're, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And we're here uh, broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, today is uh, Saturday, April 8th, uh, 2023. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And anyway, uh deals uh, with the current situation taking place in uh, West Asia. Uh, as the situation has intensified over the last uh, several days, two Israeli military officials say the Tel Aviv regime decided to launch airstrikes on positions of the Palestinian Hamas resistance movement in southern Lebanon and the Gaza Strip after a spat of rocket attacks against the occupied territories, apparently to avoid a wider conflict with Lebanon's Hezbollah resistance movement. In discussing their response to a barrage of rockets launched from Lebanon on Thursday, Israeli authorities concluded that the regime didn't have any interest in getting dragged into a war in Lebanon that would risk turning into a regional conflict, the Israeli officials said. According to a report uh, published by the United States uh, website uh, Axios that was uh, published on yesterday, one of the officials said in the consultation held by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Minister of Military Affairs Yoav Kalant, ahead of a security cabinet meeting uh, late on Thursday, the Israeli military and the spy agency Mossad presented different assessments on what Hezbollah's response would be to uh, the airstrikes on uh, Lebanon. And of course, um, the war uh, has intensified inside of uh, Palestine proper, but at the same time, uh, it is escalating as well on a regional level. Now, specifically in regard to the situation in Lebanon, Lebanese caretaker Foreign Minister Abdallah Abu Habib has filed a complaint with the United Nations Security Council and United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres against Israel after the regime said it had struck targets belonging to the Palestinian resistance group Hamas in southern Lebanon. According to Lebanon's official national news agency, Bou Habib held a meeting with caretaker Prime Minister Najib Mikati earlier today, after which he instructed the permanent mission of Lebanon to the United Nations in New York to submit an official complaint to the UN Security Council and the UN chief regarding the impact of the Israeli bombing and deliberate aggression at yesterday's dawn in areas in southern Lebanon. The top Lebanese diplomat called the Israeli aggression a flagrant violation of Lebanon's sovereignty and a deliberate breach of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1701. UN Security Council Resolution 1701, which brokered a ceasefire in the war of aggression Israel launched against Lebanon in 2006, calls on Tel Aviv to respect Beirut's sovereignty and territorial integrity. The Israeli military announces striking targets inside Lebanon, from which dozens of rockets were fired earlier at the occupied territories. The Israeli bombardment in the early hours yesterday followed a spat of rocket launches uh, from southern Lebanon as tensions soared after the Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in the occupied old city of Al-Quds, 
uh, twice uh, this week and violently attacked Palestinian worshipers, marking the holy fasting month of Ramadan. And uh, in other news, in the United States, Tennessee has become a new front in the battle for the future of African-American democratic rights after Republicans expel two African-American lawmakers from the state legislature for their part in a protest urging passage of gun control measures. In separate votes uh, just two days ago, the grand old party supermajority expelled Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, a move leaving about 140,000 voters in primarily African-American districts in Nashville and Memphis with no representation in the Tennessee House. Kevin Webb, a 53-year-old teacher from Pearson's district, said removing him, quote, for such a small infraction, end quote, is, quote, classic America, end quote. Quote, there's been a bias against black individuals in this country for 500 years, Webb said. What makes us think that it's going to stop all of a sudden? Pearson and Jones were expelled in retaliation for their role in the protest, which unfolded in the aftermath of a school shooting in Nashville that killed six people, including three young students. A third Democrat was spared expulsion by one-vote margin. The removal of the lawmakers who were only recently elected reflects a trend in dozens of states where Republicans are trying to make it harder to cast ballots and challenging the integrity of the election process. At least 177 bills restricting voting or creating systems that can intimidate voters or permit partisan interference were found or introduced in dozens of states so far this year, according to the Brennan Center. Quote, it represents a really slow erosion of our democracy, said Neha Patel, co-executive director of the State Intervention Innovation Exchange, a strategy center for state legislators working towards progressive policies. Patel called the expulsions, quote, the third prong of a long-running strategy, end quote. She said it was once unprecedented for states to make it harder for people to vote, uh, but the practice has become commonplace. Well, that was commonplace uh, up until at least the mid to late 1960s, and even in some areas beyond that, and it has resurfaced in various uh, ways uh, over the last uh, several decades. It's also become common for the Republicans to challenge the electoral process and raise questions about election integrity. The next question is whether states with Republican supermajorities will follow Tennessee's lead in expelling opponents with different points of view, she said. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, and other news just weeks after Burkina Faso's Military government ousted hundreds of French troops. Signs appeared that the West African country could be moving closer to Russia, including the outfit entitled the Wagner Group. One signal uh, was Burkina Faso's authorities requested in February nearly $30 million in gold from its mines to be handed over for public necessity. It's unclear what the gold was used for, but some suspect the gold could be used to hire uh, personnel from the Wagner Group that already are entrenched in other troubled African countries like Mali and the Central African Republic. Quote, it might be a coincidence that the Borkanabi demanded the purchase of the gold right after they kicked out the French and started moving closer to the Russians, said William Linder, 
a retired Central Intelligence Agency officer and head of the 14 North Strategies, an African-focused risk advisory. Quote, still, it strikes fear among investors that the state will renege on existing agreements and disadvantageous and disadvantaged established industrial miners to pay for Russian military contractors, this former Central Intelligence Agency uh, officer assessed in regard to the West African state of Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso's government denies hiring, hiring of Wagner personnel, uh, but the government is expecting Russian instructors to come and to provide training uh, for their soldiers on how to use equipment recently published, recently purchased uh, from Russia, said Mamadou Dribo, executive secretary to save Burkina, a civic group that supports the military government. We asked the Russian government because of the bilateral collaboration between Burkina and Russia that they send us people to train our men. He said, adding that the instructors will teach soldiers about weapons, military techniques, as well as culture. And uh, finally, uh, this uh, weekend uh, represents the 30th anniversary of the martyrdom of South African revolutionary Chris Hani. Chris Hani, uh, who is still extremely popular, uh, was assassinated on April 10th of 1993. He was gunned down by a white supremacist, a killing that almost plunged the country into a deeper racial war and resounds to this day as anger within the South African black majority reached boiling point. Nelson Mandela appealed for calm on national television in April of 1993. When Hani died, he sparked something in South Africa, political commentator Justice Malala, who has penned a book on the murder. Uh, three decades on, a mix of nostalgia, grief, and rancor permeate preparations to commemorate the slain hero as a nation contends with stark inequalities and corruption scandals. Chris Honey is almost the antidote to what South Africa has become, Malala said. He represents in the South African mind the idea of freedom and freedom fighters being perhaps naively people of high principles of integrity and of service. The leader of the South African Communist Party at the time of his death, Honey was born in 1942 uh, to a family in the southern eastern Cape province. Uh, he attended uh, Catholic school and, of course, uh, he also studied uh, Latin and classical literature at the university. He quickly got involved in the liberation movement. Hani was one of the first to join Mkonto with Sizwe, MK, the armed wing of the African National Congress, as he soon gained a reputation for challenging uh, the existing leadership at that time. And uh, we'll have uh, more information on the next program uh, in regard to the lifetimes and contributions of Chris Hani. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, for this program. And in concluding uh, this segment of the Pan-African Journal, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. 
The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, April 8th, uh, 2023, go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We will take a break and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the voice of Freddie Scott uh, with the classic uh, rhythm and blues track, Are You Lonely For Me, Baby? And um, just this last past week, in fact, just two days ago, uh, two African-American Democratic uh, State House representatives were expelled uh, from uh, the Tennessee State Assembly uh, based at the state capitol in Nashville. Uh, Justin um, Pearson and uh, Justin Jones were expelled uh, from uh, the Tennessee State Legislature. And uh, we're going to have uh, a report on his background, one of them's uh, background, uh, which is in the Bay Area of California. And then we'll uh, proceed to listen to the actual transcript, uh, excerpts of the transcript from the so-called hearing that was held on Thursday that resulted in their expulsion for participating in a uh, demonstration uh, that took place late last month advocating for gun control legislation in the Tennessee State Assembly. Let's listen uh, to this report. Vice President Kamala Harris met today with two young lawmakers who were expelled from the Tennessee State House. One of those men is a Bay Area native. KTV's Gianna Katsuyama joins us live now with why some say the battle in Tennessee is symbolic of a larger nationwide rift. Well, Justin Jones grew up in Hercules, and I spoke tonight with one relative who says that they are proud of how he stood up and spoken up. I spoke with one expert tonight who talks about how this Tennessee conflict exposes the differences nationwide in how people in our current political climate address divergent views on civility and discourse. Justin Pearson raised a fist as people cheered for him Friday on the campus of Fisk University. Just one day after Pearson and another young state lawmaker, Justin Jones, were expelled from the Tennessee State House. Jones is a Bay Area native who grew up in Hercules. The two young men and one fellow lawmaker, Gloria Johnson, joined in a March 30th protest using bullhorns in the State House and breaking protocol to call for gun control legislation after a school shooting. We have rules, we have decorum, we have process, we have procedures. Imagine if that happened on the congressional floor during his State of the Union address. The Tennessee Black Caucus Friday blasted Republicans, noting expulsion is usually reserved for extreme ethics breaches and that Johnson was not expelled. I don't have to say a word about the fact that our two young African-American brothers were unfairly prosecuted. It's a horrific indictment on the uh, Tennessee GOP, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves. The bitter division in Tennessee drew an unscheduled visit from Vice President Kamala Harris, who met with the two young lawmakers. One of the key things to remember is that there are uh, established processes for violations of ethical rules. And uh, one question is why those processes were sidestepped here. Larry Rosenthal, program director for UC Berkeley Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement, says Tennessee is an example of the deep divisions in the nation and highlights a difference in people's ideas of discourse, civility, and political action that are all colliding. There is a new, um, a new uh, playing field, which is more about fighting than settling, more about yelling, uh, than speaking and listening. A lot of people are on essentially a warlike footing relative to their politics, and we're seeing that embattlement, uh, those lines being drawn, and this brings with it a certain level of disrespect and outright mistreatment of people. 
this situation in Tennessee part of the need for a much larger dialogue, he says. And both Jones and Pearson say although they were ousted, they do plan to run again for those same House seats. Christina. Joanna Katsuyama reporting in the newsroom. Jana, thank you. And uh, that was a report on uh, what transpired uh, just this last past week. Now we're going to listen to the actual uh, transcripts, uh, excerpts from the transcripts, uh, the actual audio files of uh, the purported debate that went on around the expulsion of these two African-American legislators in Nashville from the state assembly in Tennessee. Let's listen in. The rule I even thought I broke wasn't even a rule in the first place. But to be able to bend the rules or skip the rules for certain folks or to use the rules against duly elected members of this body for either politically motivated reasons or ideologically motivated reasons are wrong. And not only is it about setting a bad precedent for generations and generations to come, it's bad today right? for people who still believe and have faith in what Tennessee can be, for the young people who still are marching and are speaking out saying that this is still an institution a place where change can happen but if we hang on to those principalities and that wickedness that is, is too often before us instead of continually continuously working to improve and continuously working to grow and working to uh, actually create just legislation and not call people who are advocating for it, folks who are calling for temper tantrums if we don't get beyond that we will not be able to build this institution or our state into what we know it can and should be which is a place where we don't have the issues of poverty that we have, where we've expanded medical uh, care for everybody. We, we want to build a place where everybody in this state can become who God has called for them to be. And at this point in this place, instead of working on those things, we're working to expel people whose voices we disagree with and whose ideologies and perspectives about the liberation of everybody we view as wrong. Lear Lambert. Representative Pearson. You know, I've sat here today and I haven't said much. This is a difficult day, I think, for all of us and for all of Tennessee. Like many others that have spoken on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, and all of the people that are here today, because they have families, they have jobs, they have homes, we are all on this House floor because this is important. And you would agree with that, I hope, correct? Representative Pearson. Of course. I've struggled when I listen to you speak about what you think about the rest of your colleagues here, because we are colleagues. You ran and were elected by the people of your district. So was I. Why do you feel like when there are hundreds of bills that are being filed, there are hundreds of hours of work being put in by all of these people, who have children and grandchildren and constituents who have been killed by violence and, yes, gun violence and others, and yet you stand here and you came to the well of this chamber and silenced 96 other voices. And the stuff you have said, because I respect you, I actually literally respect you, you're a very intelligent individual. You're very zealous. You're very passionate about what you believe in. I am passionate about my constituents as well. 
I don't want any child anywhere in this state to be in danger. You've heard me say those words, but you don't seem like you believe that any of us care about our constituents as much as you care about yours. Though many people in this body have served their communities for decades, both Republican and Democrat. When you step into the well with a bullhorn and are yelling and screaming and are sharing with the people of this state that you believe that none of us care and you shut down the ability of even a response, surely you can at least admit that that is an egregious thing to shut out other voices because only together with everybody's thoughts at the table, everybody's voice at the table, can we possibly solve the problems that plague our day? Every single voice is important. Yours, mine, everyone's. Does it not matter to you that in doing so, you shut down every other voice and elevated yourself even above the very families who were going through hell because their loved ones were killed and it appeared to us as if in that brooch of protocol. It's not about the rules. It's about that you elevated yourself above the very dead bodies that had not been put in the ground yet. How can you not get that? We all, all of us, want to make sure that there's no more children killed. Surely you get that, but I... I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I understand that your voice matters. I would ask that you explain to this body why you feel like ours do not. Because on almost every single bill you've spoken, and I think your questions have been illuminated in certain issues that I might not have thought about because I haven't walked in your shoes, you haven't walked in mine. But those rules are there so that we can have this back and forth instead of people just shouting at each other in which nothing gets resolved. I wanted to share that because I wanted to hear your thoughts on how coming to the House floor with a bullhorn and drowning out the voice of my constituents is helpful in this exchange because this is the way that I know how to resolve things, to talk about them and share ideas and share our differences in a way that comes to better results. What are your thoughts on that? Representative Pearson. Mr. Lambert, you're wrong. I don't think that one person's voice is more important than anybody's, especially the 96 or so other folks. But what about the thousands of people who were here that Thursday who you never recognized? What about the thousands of people here who your colleagues never made eye contact with or smirked at and, and, and gave a thumbs up or laughed at? What about the thousands of people who came here saying, we need to end gun violence and we need you to do something, and they were called insurrectionists by the Speaker of this House? What about the thousands of people who marched the streets of Nashville and came up to this Capitol asking that we do something, but instead of getting just legislation that might protect our schools, we're saying put more guns in schools? I have to tell you, Leader Lambert, I'm shocked that you would say that you care so much about debate in this moment. I, I am because I've seen uh, and talked with a young person today who said they came to you and they were talking with you and there was another representative, Representative Jones there, and he was trying to speak with you and you yelled at him, I've heard enough from you, young man. You said that to another equal member of this body 
And so it is hard for me to now listen to you, a person who has yet to put forward legislation that I believe or that I think has had the, the, the true input of other members of this house and other members of this body's input that could actually help protect and save our communities. I haven't heard you talk about the red flag gun laws that you're ready to propose. I haven't heard you talk about the gun storage bills that you're ready to propose. I haven't heard you talking about those things or putting resources or money towards our communities that are suffering from gun violence. I haven't heard you do those things just yet. And so it, it is very difficult for me to stand here now for you to think that I am trying to elevate myself above the people who were killed at Covenant or my own people, like Dr. Yvonne Nelson or Larry Thorne or TJ Crutcher. I, it's really difficult that for you to look me in the eye and tell me that I'm putting myself above people who have been killed by gun violence, who I know personally and who I don't know personally but advocate for, when in this house, on that day when we returned, instead of putting forward just legislation, we moved on as business as usual. We had only one representative to speak about the shooting at Covenant, and we moved on. So don't tell me, sir, that debate is so important to us when you didn't stand up and tell the speaker, we need to make sure that all members can speak now. Go ahead, Leader Lambert. Leader Lambert, um, the first five ran out. That was his five. We'll put you back on the list and come back to you. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, we don't. <laughs> we'll come right back. It's fine. We'll be, we'll be back in five minutes or less, potentially. Representative Harris. When I look at you, I see myself. If I'm unable to see you as my brother, then it is my vision that is blurred. I don't want to talk to the members about this. I just want to talk to you directly as another young brother in this legislature. I remember when I first got here, I, uh, I think that... Um, I would walk by people, even now I still do, and one thing mem every member is going to be able to say is that I, I speak to every single person. I'm going to say, hey, how are you? How's it going? I'm going to speak to every single person. Everybody doesn't speak back. So we're going to talk about silence. On these committees that we serve on, I understand where you're coming from on this because a lot of times there is a lot of silence. You can ask to speak on something and it's going to be silenced. I served on a committee last year that I, the speaker can actually attest to. I, I asked the speaker to be removed from the committee because a rule was put in place that we had to provide the questions ahead of time. So we were being silenced. I look back at uh, a few weeks ago, I was in a committee um, and the chairman who I've uh, have the utmost respect for, um, heard me ask for a question and ignored me, silenced. It happens so often here. We have to find our place. So whereas you decided to go to the well to speak on behalf of people, thousands of people, because we had been silenced for so long, that buildup happens. I was talking to a member on yesterday uh, about 
today's proceedings. And they said, well, I respect you. I respect you highly. I think of you greatly now. When I first got here, people had an opinion of who I was before they had even gotten to know who I was. You got here a week and a half ago. They haven't had an opportunity to get to know who you are. They've already made their decision. And that's okay. We'll see you back. What I want you to know, though, is that as you do it, do everything in love. When I leave out of this place, I'll be here for some, some time. I mean, if you look around this room, a lot of these members may retire, be dead and gone, but rules and stuff will still change, and you'll be here. We have an obligation to serve and represent people, every single one of us. And while things may not pan out the way you want it to right now, just know it really did work out. And I say that because if you watched an hour or so ago, it didn't really work out. And so we're here now. People are looking, paying attention to every single thing we do, respectfully. We had a member from our community that was murdered, Tyree Nichols, murdered. We talked about him for one week. We had six individuals killed recently, three children, three adults. And we would have talked about them for one week had you not done what you did last Thursday. You allowed for more voices to be heard. Now, while I may have done things a little different, you made a difference that everybody's gonna remember. And I promise you, those young people, the people that's gonna pass away in the future, things that may happen in the future, they're gonna get heard. And when you go back home, just know you did a great job. Matthews 25, 21 says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It has been a joy to work with you no matter what happens here today. Representative Pearson. Thank you, uh, Representative Harris. And indeed, uh, we are in a movement rooted in love the movement for justice, the movement to end gun violence, the movement to end poverty, to ensure every kid gets good education, the movement to ensure everybody has access to health care, it's rooted in love because it's rooted in the belief that every person has value. And I know that that's counterculture or that's subversive to some people's way of thinking, but it is rooted in love. And that is how we can and that is the way we must operate but I, I want to speak to, to this because I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I, I, I'll promise you that it's all right with me. Uh, what, what I will say is that those silences that uh, my colleague is talking about, it's an institutional problem. And I see a lot of chairmen here talking and, and a lot of other leaders here of the party uh, that's in positions of power right now. And I'm really speaking to the chair folk. 
uh, y'all have a responsibility to make sure your committees still are democratic. I've watched the committee hearings, and oftentimes, you, again, you get folks calling the question before any other colleague gets to ask any question, even when they have valid points. You get folks, I came up here last year uh, fighting for this environmental justice legislation. We had six people who were supposed to speak on, committee, uh, on the committee, and it turned into miraculously just two. Upholding the ideal that all of us want for democracy, the idea that folks died for and that they fought for and that they cried for and that they gave their lives for, folks like my granddaddy who fought in World War, uh, World War II in Vietnam, folks folk who have given and sacrificed for this country, the responsibility to hold together this democracy does not just fall on the hands of the people who are being persecuted. It's actually the people who are in positions of power. Because when you don't, you abuse the power. And this resolution uh, sponsored, this is, in my eyes and many folks' eyes, an abuse of power. But I would say to you, no matter what happens, I'm all right. But I, I want y'all to know who remains, that each of you have an obligation to stop turning the people's house into your own club that the folks who sit in committees with you, who got elected just like you, who swore the same oath that you swore, they deserve a voice in these committee rooms and we deserve a voice on this house floor. The erosion of democracy in the state legislature is what got us here. It wasn't walking up to the well, it was being disrupted to a status quo that silences the minority. And it is wrong. And the people in this state and the people across the country and the world, whoever's watching, are wanting to see a change. Just because you have power doesn't give you the right to abuse it. Because even if I disagree with your constituents on political issues, I do agree on the principle for which my ancestors fought and died, which is that they would have a democracy. A democracy, as one said, that is governed by the people and for the people, not one that's governed by ideas and principalities and beliefs and ideological divides that try and silence folk. It's horrible that someone who got elected just like you can't even get a good morning from you. Somebody who got elected just like you can't speak in committee sitting next to you. But then you come here to persecute me and tell me you just don't understand the rules of debate. When I know for a fact this house has not been a place of debate for Democrats. This house has not been a place of debate for people who are transgender. This house has not been a place of debate for people who are LGBTQIA. This house has not been a place of debate for people who are already persecuted in our society. This house ain't even been a place of debate for people who wear beautiful dashikis in honor of their ancestors who made it over. And so it's one thing to hold the ideals up in this moment, to talk about today, to talk about how good democracy is working in Tennessee in this moment as you prepare to persecute individuals for expulsion. It is one thing to talk about those ideals, but it, it's another thing to actually be in this house, to see members being misnamed. Folks won't even say... That was your five.
No, that was the new five. That was the, that was the second five. Sorry. We're going next. Is it part million question? What's the question? Mr. Clark. Yeah. All right. Representative Hawk. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I didn't plan to speak today. We're talking about the committee system and we're talking about floor actions like this is something new. The supermajority that we've heard about through our conversations today, that's what's new. The Democratic Party had control of both bodies of the legislature for 140 years. And early on, I couldn't get a bill heard. I couldn't get recognized in committee. I had a challenging time ever having a conversation on the floor about a concern that I have. There were certain people who were able to pass bills. There are certain people who were able to talk on bills. So it's not something that's new. And all that being said, two wrongs don't make a right. Even though it did happen for 140 years, I think that the speaker, I think that our many, most, if not all, of our committee chairmen have gone out of their way to have people heard, much more so than what I experienced in my early years down here. I heard an interesting reaction from the crowd a few moments ago as someone was talking about, about when this legislature changes and, and when members who may be here now may be dead and gone. And the crowd outside cheered like that. The crowd cheered when that was mentioned. And that hurts my heart that anyone could wish or laugh when we're talking about our members being gone, members being dead and gone. That's what's being discussed. We talk about the focus not being on an individual, but we're seeing that individual right now bring the focus to himself. I heard him, there's also said earlier, people had opinions of who I was before people even knew who I was. And we were talking about how to learn the rules and how many rules there are and how it's a challenge to learn the rules in such a short time. And one of the way I learned the rules down here was from senior members. And I came on the floor several weeks ago and expressed the way that I learned the rules of the house. And I'm expressing that to the 15 freshman men on the floor and I tell them the story of Lois DeBerry and how she expressed to me 
what was supposed, what was understood I was supposed to be doing. And I took that advice in good faith, and I never made that mistake again. The reactions that we have seen began calling me everything in the book. National media called me everything in the book. Thankfully, members of leadership on the Democratic side came up to me and said, we know you're not what you were called. We know that you care. We know that you've been a part of this process. So I just left that as someone being naive. We left it that. But I'm wondering, how do we learn the rules? Do we sit there and read what's on the paper? Is it life experience? Do we listen to those who have gone through this legislative process before to teach us, to try to instruct us? And I'm going to get to a question here. We've been talking about how individuals at a particular time last week got to the well, but I'm wondering what was the plan to get out of the well? And we saw there in the video being chastised by leadership. What was the plan to get out? Representative Pearson, you recognize. Representative Hawk represents something that we ought to talk about. And it's a, it's a common phrase. I'm not going to talk about white supremacy and things like that right now because I think that's what you're referring to. That's not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, what I want to talk about is just a common phrase that all of you know. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And there have been folks like, like this, and I didn't even realize Democrats have been in control of the House for 140 years or anything like that. That's a, that's a substantial amount of time. Um, uh, but in what the representative said was given reasoning or license for mistreatment of other members that are not currently in the majority. That is not how we sustain our democracy. Saying these things such as, uh, I didn't get recognized in committees, saying things like, uh, uh, I, uh, had, I, I only certain people could pass bills. These are the exact same things that I hear as a member of the minority party. There's something wrong in the way that this house is operating. And when it got called into question in a peaceful protest to end gun violence, the response was not, what could we do to do something different? What could we do to do something better? How can we recognize that this change is something that the people in this state are demanding? And as for it wasn't, how do we listen to the parents and the children who are protesting, not calling them insurrectionists? It wasn't, what can we do to make sure this body responds to the needs of our communities, not with just spending hundreds of millions of dollars on more war or weapons of war? or doing things like lowering the age requirement for people to get guns. The idea was to now arm teachers. It was not what do we get from the people who came to listen and to show up and be a part of the process, as you call it. That wasn't it. Your hurt continues to cause you to hurt people. 
and this body is hurting people. You just expelled a member for exercising their First Amendment rights. For a house decorum rule, when the last two people committed actual crimes, 22 counts of sexual assault, bribery, is that you're having to see, address ideas and people different than you're used to. You're having to answer questions that you're not used to having to answer. You're having to see people in positions just like you that you aren't used to seeing. That's, now I understand, Representative Hawk, what Representative Farmer was getting to about why I'm really here. Doesn't have to do with not following decorum about fighting for the end of gun violence. It has to do with an idea and an ideology that says there's only one way that we're going to allow thinking up in here if you're going to be here. It's only one way that you're going to be if you're going to be in this house. But the news for you and for every member in this legislative body is that this country is changing in magnificent ways. That the diversity of the state of Tennessee is changing in magnificent ways. That the voices and the people who are protesting aren't just black folk and ain't just white folk, ain't just rich folk or poor folk. It is a multiracial coalition built on a solidarity dividend can, that can break any institution that refuses to change. And so because we need not cling to hurt, I suggest that this institution choose to change. Change the way that it is operating in order for justice to be possible here, for everybody's voice to be treated equitably here. I will say this. Lois DeBerry, Speaker Pro Tem, why was she never the Speaker of this House? She deserved to be Speaker of this House. And the reality is, the reason that she was saying things about decorum and things like that was because she understood that the institution that she was a part of institution as the second black woman, I believe, to ever be elected in the Tennessee State Legislature. The way she had to present herself, the things she had to do and say, and the way she had to look was so important because black folk wouldn't get respected otherwise, because white folks wouldn't respect them. They'd call them boy. They'd call them girl instead of chairperson or speaker pro tem. All right. Represent Towns. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, here again, and members, I'm going to say that this House right now should be in mourning. We really should be in mourning after the incident at Covenant with the six beautiful souls that untimely transitioned. That's what we still should be doing, watching the flags fly at half-mast. Because I know that particular day, everybody was hurting, and a lot of us are still hurting. Hearts broken. A heartache is a hell of a thing. Our hearts were cracked and broken, and you can't put it back together again. We're supposed to be in mourning. This house ought to be in mourning. 
It has not healed. Hadn't had time to heal. It takes time to heal a broken heart. But we've been deflected on trumped up charges for one of our members, two of our members, three of our members, which is subconsciously denying us the ability to heal and plan and progress our way through this melee of madness, of death and destruction in our communities. We should be in mourning. And in our anger, we're lashing out at our members, at the brothering, if you will, on this house floor. We're lashing out. That is not Christian. That is not kindness. That is not brotherly. And that's not something that we should act that way towards our colleagues. As I've shared with you, none of our members should be expelled because there were other measures if there need to be anything done in terms of discipline. We had other measures. I ask that you allow our members to stay and allow us to get back to mourning and to figure out how we can address this plague that's harming our nation and harming our people and harming our state and harming our citizens. The people are calling for something to be done. Many of us don't know exactly what needs to be done. But we know we have to do something. Any of us would run into a burning building to try to save some children. All of us. As I shared about the anger, when we get angry, we may be like a dysfunctional F troop and all the children die because we're mad. Madness, temporarily insanity, it's insaneness when you go mad. Can't rule and judge over people with madness. Sober minds and hearts of flesh, passion, when you're trying to legislate and have sway over human beings' lives. My grandmother told me something a long time ago that she said, baby, you never spank your children when you're angry at them. I said, why, my dear? She said, you may hurt them. We're hurting our members because we're mad. The body has gone mad. It's like an autoimmune disease. The body turns against itself. We're mad because of something that transpired on this floor. We need to figure out how to save our member, and I'm encouraging that we don't expel our member. I really appreciate your consideration and hope that we act accordingly come out of this stupid madness and do what's going to be just, justice for Justin. Thank you, members. Representative Pearson. Thank you, Representative Towns. And I just want to reiterate why uh, uh, we should be in mourning and why we are here. I, I don't want to forget Representative Freeman's district. 
catalyst for this conversation. And unfortunately, instead of it being a catalyst today for the passing of those laws, it's about expelling, expelling myself and two other members of the House. We have in this state a proliferation of guns, and we have significant incidences of gun violence. That is the reality of what's happening in the state of Tennessee. That is a real issue that needs to be addressed. And this expulsion and other conversations that take away from the real calls for change that are coming out of the halls and coming out of the homes of people in all of our communities is detracting away from the calls and cries for justice that each of us need to be answering, that each of you need to be answering. And if your mind has not changed about how we get there since last Thursday, if your mind hasn't changed about how we make Tennessee a better, more safe place, if you are offering the same solutions or resolutions or ideas, then you are not listening to the people. You are not listening to the communities like Memphis and Shelby County that are suffering. You're not listening to the folks who are dealing with gun violence on every single day, every news cycle. All of us should be being uh, transformed in the ways that we're thinking about solving this problem. But instead of being transformed to do something to solve it, we're silencing folks who said we've got to say something. The resolution isn't expulsion. The resolution is doing something to pass meaningful gun violence prevention. That's what we should be doing. That's what you should be doing. Saying how do we prevent incidences like what's happening to folks like Larry, all the way to folks like at Covenant? How do we actually prevent this from happening by ensuring that this proliferation of gun violence ceases on our watch? That's what folks are calling for, asking for, and demanding. And that's what I will continue to call for and ask for and demand because we can do it. It is possible for this legislative body to pass more just laws. Now, whether the will is there is up to each and every one of you. It's up to you to decide whether or not we need red flag laws. It's up to you to decide whether or not we're going to pass gun lock storage laws. It's up to you to decide whether or not we're going to Stop folks who shouldn't have guns from having AR-15s that can send hundreds of rounds through people's schools and homes and bodies. This, these are decisions that can be made by we who have been elected, by you who have been elected. You know, I always got pretty frustrated when I saw the whole thoughts and prayers thing, you know. It always bothered me because I always said, the people in power must do something. The people in power will do something, I thought, I believe, naively. And then I had the opportunity because some folks at age 93 and 88 and 81 and 70 went to the polls 
to cast a ballot, not just for Justin, but for justice. Uh, I had the opportunity to come to that place to see the faces of the people who I would always say they have the power to do something. These folks, they're the ones who folks are always mad that they send thoughts and prayers at. Because they've got power that they will to actually be able to change the situation. But instead of looking into these faces and seeing a dogged determination to change what is going on, I'm seeing a dogged determination to expel me and expel the voice of District 86 in this state house because we know we need to have an end to gun violence. Because we're tired of having kids and adults and loved ones being killed by guns. So it's disappointing. But that dogged determination does live in certain people. And that gives me hope. Representative Warner. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'll call for the question. Question's been called. There's objection. We're voting on previous question. All those in favor of previous question, vote aye when the bell rings. All those opposed, vote no. Has every member voted? Does any member wish to change their vote? <clears throat> Mr. Clerk. Take the vote. Aye, uh, 73, 23 nays. Previous question prevails. Let the journal reflect. Representative Terry is excused. Representative Pearson, you have five minutes to close. Okay, give me one second. Speaker, uh, I just want to ask a point of privilege. Speaker, point of personal privilege. Is it possible that Senator Ackberry could join uh, us up here? Former uh, State House Representative? Yeah, she can come. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, she's going to stand next to me. Leader Camper. Come on, Senator. All glory and honor to God who makes all things possible, who takes the son of teenage parents, Kimberly Owens Pearson and Jason C. Pearson, and brings them to an institution built by enslaved people's hand. All glory and honor to God who brings those who've been marginalized and excluded into this place and tells them that you still have a voice, that you still are somebody, and that the movement for love and justice cannot be stopped because we've still got a heartbeat, because we've still got a movement for love that needs us. We've still got people who are calling on us to act and to do something. To all you who still believe that the best days for democracy are ahead, for all of you who still believe that our better days in Tennessee are ahead, I want to tell you that I still believe with you. And how, how is it that even now with this persecution on this holy week, after my own brother Justin Jones, Representative Jones, gets expelled from the House, is it that we still have hope and faith and belief in the democracy of Tennessee, faith and hope and the belief in the democracy of the United States of America? How is it that you still have hope, you descendant of enslaved people? How is it that you still have hope? Well, it's because even from the bottom of slave ships, my people didn't quit. 
Even in cotton fields and rice fields, my people didn't quit. Even when they were whipped and chained and told they had no name, my people didn't quit. Even when they incarcerated us, locked us up for a crack cocaine epidemic created by President Ronald Reagan on the war in South America, my people didn't quit. Even when they defunded our schools, separated us and called us colored and white, even when they put us on lynching trees in the state of Tennessee, specifically in Shelby County. My people didn't quit. Even now, as our own brothers and sisters lay to rest because of the failure of people in positions of power to do something, because people are refusing to pass just laws to end the epidemic of gun violence in the state of Tennessee, my people have yet to quit. And so even now, amidst this vote, amidst this persecution, I remember the good news. Hallelujah, Jesus. I remember that on Friday, the government decided that my Savior Jesus, a man that was innocent of all crimes except fighting for the poor, fighting for the marginalized, fighting for the LGBTQ community, fighting for those who are single mothers, fighting for those who are ostracized, fighting for those pushed to the periphery, my, my savior, my black Jesus. He was lynched by the government on Friday. And they thought that all hope had been lost. All the, 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 the outside, it rained and it thundered and, and everybody said everything was over and it was some black women Watch what the government did to that boy named Jesus. They were witnesses, as you have been witnesses to what is happening in the anti-democratic state of Tennessee. They were witnesses to what was going on. And I got to tell you, it got quiet on Saturday. Yes, I tell you, it was a sad day on Saturday. All hope seemed to be lost. Representatives were thrown out of the state house. Democracy seemed to be at its end seemed like the NRA and gun lobbyists might win. But, oh, that was good news for us. I don't know how long this Saturday in the state of Tennessee might last. But, oh, we have good news, folks. We've got good news that Sunday always comes. Resurrection is a promise, and it is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that came out of the cotton field. It's a prophecy that came out of the lynching tree. It's a prophecy that still lives in each and every one of us in order to make the state of Tennessee the place that it ought to be. And so I still got hope because I know we are still here and we will never quit. We're voting on House Resolution 63. All those in favor, vote aye when the bell rings. Those opposed, vote no. Has every member voted? Does any member wish to change their vote?
Mr. Clerk, take the vote. I 6926 nay. I received the consent. is hereby adopted without objection the motion reached there is table pursuant to article 2 section 12 of the constitution of the state of tennessee i hereby declare representative justin j pearson of the 86th representative district expelled from the house of representatives of the 103rd general assembly of the state of tennessee next order mr clark announcement announcement next order mr clark roll call roll call And uh, those were the proceedings uh, of the uh, vote that took place just two days ago in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, when two uh, African-American state representatives were expelled uh, from the Tennessee uh, State Assembly. Uh, it is a issue that has uh, sent shockwaves throughout the country and indeed uh, throughout the world. Take the roll, Mr. Clark. Mr. Speaker, 89 members present. Leader Cocker, you're recognized. Leader Cock, Leader Lambert, you're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I move the House stand and recess until 5 p.m. on Monday, April 10th, 2023. Without objection, the House stands and recess till 5 p.m. on Monday, April 10th, 2023. And uh, that was the uh, actions of the uh, Tennessee uh, State Assembly, the uh, Republican uh, supermajority, uh, which expelled uh, two uh, African-American state representatives just two days ago uh, for their involvement in a demonstration on the floor of the House in Nashville, uh, demanding uh, some form of gun control legislation be passed in the state of Tennessee in the aftermath of a massacre that occurred at the Covenant School uh, in late uh, March and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're going to continue to uh, cover uh, this uh, development. And, of course, uh, you're listening to uh, our program uh, today uh, on Saturday, April 8th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Come on, 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of Carla Thomas uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, with the track entitled No Time to Lose, and there is no time to lose uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast on this uh, Saturday, uh, April 8th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, coming up in just uh, one day will represent the 125th birthday of uh, Paul Leroy Robeson, a Renaissance man of the 20th century. Uh, Robeson was born in 1898 uh, in the state of New Jersey, and of course he became a luminary uh, in the field of scholarship, sports, as a public intellectual, and indeed uh, one who defied uh, the racism and national oppression against uh, the African-American people of the United States and against all oppressed people throughout the world. Uh, His stand, uh, particularly uh, in the late 1940s, uh, brought him uh, severe uh, repression and persecution by the United States government. We're going to listen to uh, a recording of a testimony by Paul Robeson before the United States Senate in 1948. Uh, This will give you a flavor of the atmosphere which existed in 1948, uh, which was some 75 years ago. And, of course, uh, we see echoes of it uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, just this last past week. Let's listen to this recording. Is Mr. Robeson here now? All right, you may take the chair. Will you raise your right hand, please? You do solemnly swear, no matter now pending before this committee, you'll tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. traveling a good deal about the country on various missions. I'm an artist, a singer, also been in the South and the West, all over helping, singing for certain charitable organizations. And uh, coming to the bill, I see first is to protect the United States against so-called American subversive activities. I presume, since the United States doesn't exist in that it means the people of the United States. That would be more or less all right, wouldn't it? I, I would think so. Yeah. Uh, I'll get back to other sections of the bill. It says in the section two, uh, uh, in the second paragraph, that uh, in the question, the question of the necessity for the legislation, that it's uh, uh, necessary uh, to uh, protect, to the establishment of the totalitarian dictatorship in any country results in the ruthless suppression of all opposition to the party in power. This is what I'm interested in, this complete subordination of the rights of individuals to the state, the denial of fundamental rights and liberties which are characteristic of a representative form of government, such as freedom of speech, the press, the assembly, religious worship, and result in the maintenance of control over the people through fear, terrorism, and brutality. I have been all over the United States speaking and attempting to speak and I have been experiencing in our own country today this very thing of control over the people through fear, terrorism, and brutality. This is happening in all parts of this land. 
Now, uh, it seems to me if we're protecting the people of the United States, that these protections are necessary from quite another point of view than I can see in their so-called necessity in this Well, do you, do you believe that they are uh, I'm saying these, uh, entitled to protection even as providing the bill? And I also, again, want to say uh, that it says that uh, uh, <coughs> this man wasn't here and let him into his place. The complete subordination, the same paragraph, complete sort of subordination of the rights of individuals to the state, denial of fundamental rights and liberties, and so forth. I uh, uh, think that uh, this is a complete, for example, a definition, since our states are sovereign powers, so to speak, except for the rights delegated to the federal government. A complete description of, say, what happens to the Negro people today in Mississippi, Alabama, many other states of the Union. And uh, the necessity for legislation, it seems to me, I, I will go into what I consider the constitutionality, the denial of civil rights under this bill, in fact, to the whole question of, our, of the way uh, we have placed this whole question in the bill. But it seems to me that the necessity for legislation that might concern, I suggest, with the, 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 the committee today and, uh, and for some time to come, uh, that since the, in this bill uh, perhaps hundreds, thousands of Americans would like to speak on it, uh, and that, it should, uh, that not only today but perhaps in the future there should be opportunity for that, I am tremendously interested before approaching the, in detail this bill, uh, just to ask you a question as to why in the light of the terror that I've seen and the denial of rights, uh, that the lynching bill is not sort of before the Senate at this time. It hasn't come out of the committee. I couldn't answer that. I'm personally trying to get it out of the committee. I think that, uh, uh, that if there are any kind of activities that strike at the very basis of our democratic way of life, that, uh, uh, that, these, that this bill sh certainly should come out. Both parties have, have uh, gone on record for the civil rights of the Negro people. And uh, it looks as though you might get through without it. So I'm certainly hoping that, uh, that uh, this bill will come out, and perhaps even this bill could be uh, put aside for the moment and extended later to see that these rights should be, uh, uh, somebody should be guaranteed. Now, as for a bill, I see it, the whole question of protecting the rights within the people of the United States, Against the background and the whole question of communism, for example, which is brought in every Mr. minute. Robinson, uh, uh, just can I go on to my question? I'll answer, I'll answer that in just a second. Are you a member of the public? I will answer that in just a, just a moment. Can I go on to my discussion? Yes. I will answer that. Uh, the whole background, I would say so, I would strike at the very root of the conception of, of, of what is in these first paragraphs. Uh, the, for example, the origin, uh, uh, the uh, world movement with its origins and so forth. I mean, does Mr. Munt or whoever framed the bill understand that the origins of this kind of thing were in, say, the English Industrial Revolution and the time of Robert Owen in the, in the roots of, a, of the poverty of England, which it was responsible for the English poor and indentured servants coming to build America itself. This didn't just spring up the other day in some uh, part of Europe, a part of the whole struggle of human beings to improve their lot. 
one of the most important sections for myself being my own people here, the Negro people in America. So I see the whole framework of the bill in reality from my travels about this country and otherwise and about the world in the framework of what we understand as Americans of and what we mean by our democratic ways of life here as expressed in this paragraph that it means certainly from our own American history from the beginning of our struggle for freedom from England down through the civil war which freed my own people it means through the New Deal an extension we have no we, we mean anything we mean an extension of the democratic rights and full citizenship to people who do not yet have them. That would include not only one-tenth of the population, the Negro people, it would include, for example, many of the Spanish-American people that I saw in Pueblo, Colorado a few months ago, perhaps living in hovels under the ground. It would include many in the fruit fields of California, in the whole deep south and all over America. But, but, and so in, a, in approaching uh, this whole problem uh, of, of, uh, of the struggle today in Europe and elsewhere, what has happened in 1917 in Russia, what's happened in Yugoslavia in many places, it has to do with trying, with, with millions and millions of people who are denied very basic rights, economic, social, and political, of building, of trying to build a decent way of life. Against it has been, have been many forces, the most important of which we joined hands against, the forces of fascism. Now, in going about America today, I say, that those, when I was in Kansas City and I see the police beating workers over the head because they want a decent living, terrorizing the Negro people in West Virginia and all over, I say these are the, uh, the essence of, of, of Isaac trying to stop, actually stop the struggle of the people to get the democratic rights which they don't have. And I go so far as to say that I feel uh, I've been in the, the Mr. Munt State in South Dakota. I was attacked by him once when I sang there. But in the whole discussion, and we can take it up in detail, of defining uh, what is uh, uh, a communist party, what is the, a, a front organization, and what has happened, in fact, throughout America, where they, they have terrorized people from joining any kind of liberal struggle. Just a second. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that this bill has, seems to me, to have as its basic idea not to, to help the, the, the people of the United States or any other people, but to actually stop the struggle by terrorizing people to get rights for Negro people, for workers, and for other Americans who still haven't full citizenship. You read the bill, Mr. I Robert. have read the bill. All right, now section four, paragraph one. The certain acts that are prohibited are in section four. Well, they've been the other is right. merely registration. No, but, but you can't dismiss the rest of the bill. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not dismissing no, no, it. I'm, no. I'm talking about that part. Yes, okay. Do you believe that it should be unlawful for anyone to attempt to establish in the United States a totalitarian dictatorship, the direction and control of which is to be vested in or exercised by or under the domination or control of any foreign government? We have laws. Foreign organization or foreign individual? We have laws that take care of that. But wait a minute. Of course not. Sure not. You, you think that that should be the law? Sure, that's all. We, now have, we have laws to protect that. We have laws to protect that. What is the we law have, now? We have, we have plenty of laws to take care of any people who would have to attempt to overthrow this government. No, but what, what is Mr. the... Mr. Hoover can, could take care of that. Wait. That's by force or violence, uh, the Smith Act that uh, you're talking about. Okay. Well, this isn't by force or violence. You could do it by other means. What other means? Well, penetration. You don't think that Yugoslavia wasn't taken over by the communists, do you, Mr. Upson? I certainly do not. I think the Yugoslav, uh, uh, I say this is very basic. In Czechoslovakia? Is very, by no means. Let's take Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Czechoslovakia. 
You can check this up. I happened to be in Czechoslovakia in 1945 singing to American troops at the very end of the war. I, as a singer, was called in by the American military to sing to some Czechs at a big uh, 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 party. And I had been in Prague before the war, and I speak the language a little bit. And I was trying to find out who these Czechs were. So finally, a woman comes up to me and said, I encounter so-and-so and so, and I met you in Chicago during the war. I said, you were in Chicago during the war, I understand. And I suppose you, you expect the, uh, and it occurred to me that maybe she was back in Czechoslovakia to get back a couple of those castles, which had been taken away because those who owned the castles had helped the fascists. All I can say is, and I say this, and I can be called up again on this, I felt that I saw the American military, the only Czechs in the room happened to turn out to be Czech collaborationists and Sudeten Germans. And I would say that the Czech people probably made a decision that under no pressure, even American pressure, would they accept the restoration of Czech fascism, that they, if they were made to choose, they would choose the other way. That's what I would suggest. So you, but, you, you as far as Yugoslavia, it just seems to me, I was in Yugoslavia, and I saw the Yugoslav peasants suffering exactly like the Nicola peasants suffered in the South. Only they were not one-tenth of the population, they were perhaps nine-tenths of the population. And so when we helped them destroy fascism, including King Peter, whom we now seem to have in this country, floating around, I know him as a boy there in London, saw him around there, I think that, the, that what has happened in Yugoslavia came from the struggles of the Yugoslav people who, with our help, were able to take the power. And as far as I can see, Senator, they're going to keep it. All right. Mr. Robson, what is an American communist? You define that I, I consider an American what, communist. Uh, For example, I know one. I know one. He grew up with me. We came up together. He went to Amherst. I went to Rutgers. I was interested in that because uh, uh, Judge, Sto uh, Judge Stone, uh, I took law at Columbia University. He was the dean of personal property at the time. He was an Amherst man who played football. We used to talk about this. Now, this fellow grew up with me, was born in Georgia, went through all sorts of, uh, as a Negro boy, uh, in injustices and, uh, and, 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 and injury to his dignity every five minutes. He came north, went to Harvard Law School, and uh, a dear friend of mine through all my life, still is, he is today on the city council of New York City, a man who is fighting and has made a tremendous struggle for the rights of the Negro people in Harlem and all through the United States. And I know no American that I'm prouder to know, and he is an American communist on the on the on the, on the, on the earth. And all right. Now, what do they stand for? What do they stand for? No. What do they stand for? They stand, as far as I can see, uh, for. Uh, complete equality of the Negro people in America, which I would like to see in every respect. It might interest me either to know, but in going about the country, I asked university students, when did they think that the Negro people would be completely free in America, like anybody else, not special freedoms, economic, some kind of special freedoms. They said to me a thousand years, a thousand years. So I'm interested in a party and in people who, go, who like in the Scottsboro case, who risk their lives, who make every effort of any possible kind to see that the Negro people secure their rights, so the forces of labor... Do you think that's what communism stands that's for in America? It stands for me. Look, I say, I, that's my basic point. Well, that's what I want to My basic point is... That, wait, let's explain a minute. Where, where did communism come from? I'm taking it from the first paragraph. It started against the background of the sufferings of the English people in the mills, in the great industrial revolution. But which, which resulted in the slavery of my people in America. Now, in this struggle, can I say something? In this struggle, as I would put it, of the few against the many in history, that is, why did we found the American government? 
What, what happened? Why did Cromwell come over in England in 1620, 1640? Because the, he said no divine right of kings. And in order to see that in English history, they had to chop off Charles's head. And we had to, to have a revolution in 1776. We had to have a, a civil war to see that somewhere people begin to get their rights. So the French Revolution. So I see history as a struggle of the great mass of people to some way get, a, get some fair return for their labor and a decent chance to live. Yes, now, now let's, get down, on America, yes, let's get down to what the American communism is. Well, I'm saying, to me, it's a, they, are, they are a part of this whole struggle. The interest, so I, I, I can only define it against its background. All right. You can't say in one breath, Senator, that, that it's uh, American communism, offshoot of Russian communism. Well, that, that's what I want to know. I say, that, uh, no. What is, is it the domination? I say, what is Russian communism an offshoot of? Did, 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 uh, did Marx uh, or Lenin or uh, did, did this spring up in, uh, out of the head of the painting? No. These came out of the social conditions of Europe. Now, in, in, and, and, and communism began in England, not in Russia. Well, and let me say, Senator, are you an American communist? Uh, Senator, just let me finish the point. I'll, I'll answer the question. Now, in Scandinavia today, in Scandinavia today, they have decided to solve these problems of all the resources of the nation being in the hands of a few people by cooperative methods. That is, the general electorate, which controls electricity in this country, they more or less put them out of Sweden by cooperative means. In England today, they have taken over the railroads, coal, banks, by socialist means. That is, by public ownership. Now, this ought to be a mystery to the American people. We have TVA. New Zealand is a socialist country. We, th this is a part of the struggle of people to get control of some of the wealth, instead of leaving it in the hands of a few. I see communism as nothing but an extension of, of great public ownership of the main means of resources, like the railroad workers said the other day, the coal mines, if they're that important, Senator, to the United States, that every time there's a national emergency, this is life or death to the, to the American people, doesn't it occur to you that instead of beating the workers on the head, that maybe this, the government should own the railroads and the coal mines? Well, this is, this is a whole struggle of which communism is a part. This is a part of the conceptions of the struggles of human beings for ages. And you can't move communism out anywhere in the world. Well, then, do I understand? So American communism is, you might have said, what's an American socialist? What's an American democrat? American communism is part of the Russian system. But do you know that American democratic principles stem directly from the French Revolution and our own revolution? No doubt about that. very revolutionary ideas. No doubt about that. They are very revolutionary ideas. In fascist Greece today, these are very revolutionary ideas. Mr. Robinson, let's get down to some of the facts in the bill. Now, I asked you the question you said you'd answer it. Are you an American communist? Today, Senator Ferguson, that question has become the very basis of the struggle for American civil liberties. Nineteen or more, and many of the most brilliant and distinguished Americans are about to go to jail for failure to answer that question, and I'm going to join them if necessary. I refuse to answer All the right. question. You, you refuse to answer. You refuse this to... This is an invasion of my right of secret ballot, Senator Ferguson. If you want to know whether I am, the Communist Party is a legal party, like the Democratic Party, Republican Party. I'm going to vote pretty soon. If you want to send some government official to take my ballot away, a secret ballot, my constitutional right, he can see just what I am. That's it. Uh, have you a communist card in any communist organization, any state, Mr. Robson? That is, I consider, a part of the other question. 
that I refuse to. Yeah, I see. And it's it's a party that doesn't disclose. That's what I want to get at. Maybe if I were a Republican, maybe I wouldn't disclose it either. I would say, come to the ballot box and see it. I'm not interested what the Republicans do. All I know the Communist Party is a legal party in the United States. And making a magnificent I mean, struggle on many fronts. I mean, communists just refuse to disclose their members of Well, I say since you've made because you we they today you have made this 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 goes to the very heart of the bill. I say that this whole hysteria and the bill is a part of that hysteria to use this not not only to break not not to hurt communists but really to break the civil liberties of every section of the American people. The rights of labor, the rights no, of liberals. One, this, this, one, right Mr. this is a very basic. You know something about the communists of America. You've been, you, you've been, you know something about the communists of America. Many dear friends. Who are yes, it's perfectly true. And you, uh, you know. I think they've them. done a magnificent job. But isn't yes? You that's think right. they've done a magnificent right. job in America? That's, that's your right. opinion. That's right. And uh, do you know that it is a fact that they, outside of uh, of their membership? decline to disclose that they are communists. Well, uh, I think that they might be... This, this can be determined. The Supreme Court's going to have to rule on that. But no, isn't that a fact? That I except know. among themselves, they decline but to I, make it public that they are communists or no, not communists. I would say that uh, if it weren't a basic problem of civil liberties that goes to the very heart of the struggle, and which the denial of these civil liberties, of which I believe this bill to be a part, that's the reason I'm here, uh, this would not be so at all. Uh, have you ever been to Russia? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, have you uh, uh, studied in Russia? Oh, no, never studied there. I went there as you, artist. You never attended you don't, you any don't, of the... Far, 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 as far as far as that's concerned, you don't have to go to, you don't have to, go to Russia to read Marx or Lenin. No, I, I understand. They didn't, te- they didn't give to me at Rutgers, incidentally, where I went to college, but I read it. Yeah, but you've read it since. That's right. Uh, you didn't study in any school in Russia. No, no, no. Uh, do you know... I went purely as an artist. I knew nothing about them. My first one, 1934, nothing about them. Do you, do you know, know the head of the Communist Party in uh, Russia, okay. Mr. Stalin? Do you know? Uh, no, I never met him. You've never met him. I've seen him. How much time have you spent in Russia? I was there for over a period, let's say, between 34 and 37. I was there two weeks, three weeks, three months. What is much more interesting, I should think, Senator, is that my boy went to school there for two or three years. Hey, my, he, my, my he, one boy. One year, your boy? Because I found in Russia a complete absence of race prejudice. Yes. A complete absence. What's the, the name first of question, The first time in my life, Senator, that I was able to walk the earth with complete dignity as a human being. So I took my boy there. He's now at Cornell. Yes. And let me tell you what happened to him. What, what age was he? He was eight, eight or nine years old. Well, he was just nine, a... Just a boy. Very important. Very important. What school uh, did he attend? He went to a school in Moscow, a public school. Public school. Yeah. Now he came, he came, come back, came to, he's in Cornell, he's been back in America many years, went to high school. But in Russia, from not experiencing this race prejudice, today in America, uh, he's fight, going to fight for his people and fight in the progressive section of American life with a much easier than I can, for example. Because if somebody would suddenly call me a name here in the room, I would, don't think I would do anything about it. But I'm sure I'd be, I would be, I'd have a tendency to get up and want to knock the guy down. Now, he has no feeling of any kind of thing because he knows that he lived in a part of the world where there was no such thing as color prejudice. So he's going to be able to make a very kind, very important contribution, I think, to American life. Uh, now, now, this is what it did for him. That's the reason he went. Do you know whether or not the American communist owes any allegiance to the red flag? As far as I know, the Supreme Court has been put up only once. No, I refuse to pass on it. No, no, I'm asking what you know. I, You've I been traveling all over. No, 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 I don't know. 
Why, why would they? Why that? As far as I know, the American communist is interested in improving as far as possible, certainly, the lot of the people here, of the, of the people who suffer, as well as in other parts of the world right. where, this, where this becomes do, a common struggle. Do you know whether or not the American communists believe in world revolution? That I don't know. You don't know that? And, and do you know whether they, they do believe in, uh, in uh, allegiance like to the Communist Party or communism in Russia? Do you know that they owe allegiance to? Oh, no, no. I, I don't think that I, I would say no to anything, anybody, anything I know about it. I don't think they have nearly as much allegiance to Russia as certain Americans seem to have today, say, to a fascist Greek or to Turkey or to Abdullah yeah. and Jordan. You, you have uh, addressed communist meetings in America, have you? Uh, uh, President Wilson uh, gave a definition of this that of uh, the concentration of power in a few hands in the struggle of the New Deal against the so-called economic royalists, in which he defined this concentration of power as the essence of fascism. I'm, I, would like, I, would like, I would like Mr. Hoover to be sure he's got Mr. DuPont tabbed and Forrester and the people. This is very difficult because they, they are our government today. It isn't so easy to get to the basis of what might be potential American fascism. That's what frightens me. And I don't see enough about that in the bill. Doesn't, doesn't this bill cover uh, no, I don't a dictatorship, whether it be fascist or communist? You cannot say that you cannot define fascism or communism by totalitarian dictatorship. I, I disagree with a very... This, is, this, again, is misleading the American people. That is, during the war... What's your definition of uh, fascism? I would say, to me, the essence of fascism it, in two things. Let's take the more obvious one first. Uh, racial superiority. The kind of racial superiority that led a Hitler to wipe out six million Jewish people that, that can result any day in the lynching of Negro people in the South or other parts of America, the denial of their rights, the constant daily denial to any Negro in America, no matter how important women may be, of his essential human dignity, the things which no other American would accept. This daily insult to his dignity as a human being. This is the essence of that. That's the now, the second thing is, no, but the most important thing, which is the reason this can be, is the power of the resources of a nation of, in the hands of the few, in the hands of the few, and the use of the state power as Hitler or Mussolini or the police in Kansas City to, to, to beat down any attempt to strive toward any kind of democratic rights or freedoms. Even though that be law enforcement? What's that? Even though it be law enforcement? I say, even though I would say this is the very essence of the thing. We yeah. find always that law enforcement in this case is the protection of the property of the few people who are the potential of fascism. Uh, now, what is the essence of communism in America, in your opinion? The essence <laughs> to my mind of communism here anyway is, the, uh, what is, uh, every day I read in the paper, what does, uh, what does communism thrive on, all this kind of what do where, 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 you tell me, Senator, where does the, uh, where would you expect to find your communists? Would you expect to find, say, that Mr. DuPont would be a communist? Well, uh, I, I think in America today we can expect to find them anyway. Oh, you Well, no, I would say that... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it isn't a question of wealth. Oh, very much so. I, you think so? Not a question. Not, no. Just, not, no, I'm talking about, not a question of wealth in this case. Yeah. A question of wealth where it comes, like in America today, as far as that's concerned, where in the, in the end, 
Take the South. Well, you, 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 take the South. you tell me, you tell me who controls the wealth of the South. See, you gave me... No, no, let me give you the point. Oh, wait a minute. You gave me the essence of fascism. Now, I'd like to have the essence of, okay. uh, let me of give communism. It. Let me give it to you, because I, I this came to my experience. I didn't make these things up. So I'm in the South. My father was a slave. A few weeks ago, I'm standing in North Carolina on the very soil on which my father was a slave. Now, then I go into the whole history of our civilization, so to speak. One hundred million Negroes from Africa torn to pieces and died in the slave trade. On our backs in America, the very primary wealth of America built on our backs, cotton taken to the New England textile mills. What do we get from it today? Poverty, insult, inferior station in life, no opportunities. Who controls the wealth? A few people, a few people. Now somewhere, to me, by whatever means, today, what, by what, at certain times, like in our own history, these means have been revolutionary, in other times, evidently not. But somewhere to me, communism is interested in seeing that those people who are oppressed, who suffer, that somewhere they represent those people in their struggle toward the people. Now that's, that's the essence what, of communism. That's what I'm And uh, the essence of communism here is the same as the essence of communism in Russia. I would say it's the same uh, as the it has to do with the struggles of the Russian people against the Tsar's yeah. oppression. Right. It's universal. They were interested. Exactly like uh, universal in this sense, Senator Burke. You see, I don't, again, I must stop you from what is an America today. And this is what I mean, an American here. So you try to link every American who believes something with this country or that country. Now, Mr. Marshall is on record today that we are no longer American, Senator Ferguson. We are defending Western civilization, whether it's in Italy, Greece, even in Turkey. They've become the great defenders strengths to save Western civilization. Now, we have got, we as Americans today are in a world, some kind of world struggle, which we are no longer Americans. We are a part of the world. So you can't isolate this in this sense. Now, I say to Mr. Marshall, and I say as an American, I was in Europe. Now, if there are Americans who want to support Franco in Spain, let them go ahead. I was in public in Spain singing for troops who were fighting against Franco. Mr. Mr. You understand? If so, this law so this is, is this passed... Has nothing to do. You can't do it. No, I don't see the American communist doesn't. He's an American, as far right. as I know. If this law like is we were, passed... In Jefferson's time, he was an American, not a Frenchman. That's what I see. If this law is passed and the Supreme Court holds it constitutional, do you believe that it should be lived up to? If this law is passed? Yes. Or any law passed. And well, I, and say, I think this law, I sincerely hope the Senate won't pass it, and I'm, I'm sincerely hope that the, you know, that the Supreme Court will declare it unconstitutional. But if they do, you, you then believe that the people should live up to it? Well, I'm sure that I would live up to it in every in, 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 by trying in every possible way to have it taken off the books. Well, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you uh, live under it? Wouldn't you say that it was the law and therefore it Nobody's was binding argue. upon you? Nobody's arguing that point. That's what I mean. Nobody's arguing that point. Well, Mr. Foster told us Saturday, Friday, that he would not obey it if it was In what sense would he not obey it? Just he wouldn't obey it. I didn't mean he wouldn't obey it. Well, I, I, I don't know what his, uh, his thinking was, but he said that he would not obey it. He didn't believe that it should be obeyed. But he wouldn't register. He wouldn't register. Neither would I register. Well, you would register. Well, then you would violate the law. Well, I would violate the law. Oh, I see. So then you would violate the law and you would feel that you were... I would say, this to me, I would, I would fight as a... I would really fight it as a, as a real piece of American fascism. 
But you see, what I'm, what I'm talking about is after it's declared constitutional by the Supreme Court, let me put then you would defy it. Let me put it this way, Senator. Uh, let's suppose a Frenchman at a certain time is now faced with a law passed by Vichy. Would you expect that Frenchman to uh, observe it? Under the former Vichy government? That's no, right. it wouldn't be the law. Why not? Because they were, they, were, they were France at that period. Yes. They were the government of France. There's a new government there now, and they have... Now, I'm not talking about at that time. Would you have expected those men who helped our American boys come up and destroy... Well, is that the way you classify this law? I would classify it exactly in that category. I see. Then you would not... As a fascist act. Then you would not have been. That's right. As an anti-fascist, I would not have been. Now, you, uh, you recited here that your father was a slave. That's right. You are now uh, independent. Am I? Independent. Am I? Well, now you wait until I get through. Senator gets uh, his question. You are independent economically. You occupy a high position in American society. You're proud of it. You've been of service in many ways. Now, that's all been achieved in one generation. Can you think of any other country on the face of the earth where such an opportunity has been? Uh, yes. What is it? I would say that... Uh, Russia? Yes, I would say that... Not one. Now, you don't mean to say that Russian people have any opportunity at all to be anything more than slaves. <laughs> uh, you said a while ago, you, you, said you, said a while ago you approved of communism, uh, approved of communism for the deeds of the Oh, yes. Yeah. They've liberated the whole people. In many cases. Liberated the whole people. They've liquidated the Muslims. No, 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 no. Not nearly have they liquidated as many as the Negroes were liquidated in slavery or could be liquidated today in many parts of the South. Well, now there's nobody being liquidated in America today. Uh, why, why, do we have a, why, should, why should the lynching bill be on the, on the calendar of practically now? Anti-lynching bill. Well, I don't know why it should be. Why all this excitement about civil rights if they aren't necessary? And that was Paul Robeson uh, testifying before the United States Senate in 1948 um, during a period of political repression uh, in the United States. And uh, we're commemorating the 125th uh, birthday posthumously of uh, Paul Leroy Robeson Sr. And right now we're going to move to an interview uh, with Paul Robeson that was done over uh, a Bay Area radio station, KPFA, in 1958. Uh, This was after a decade of repression as illustrated in the previous uh, segment. And uh, there had been a Supreme Court uh, decision uh, during that year, uh, which did uh, give uh, black passports to people uh, such as Paul Robeson, uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois, Alpheus Hutton, and others who were able to uh, travel internationally uh, after that period. And uh, other uh, repressive measures were lessened uh, during the period. Uh, let's listen to this interview with uh, Paul Robeson from 1958. The following program is brought to you by the Pacifica Program Service and Radio Archive. I have in the studio with me Paul Robeson, who needs no introduction and Harold Winkler, who is president of Pacifica Foundation, which operates KPFA, as most of you know. Uh, Mr. Robeson has been 
known and loved as an artist all over the world for many years, but he has also, I believe, uh, attracted considerable and worldwide attention in his role as a world citizen and as a person who was uh, very deeply concerned about the society in which he lived. I wonder, Mr. Robeson, if we could kick off by asking, uh, when did you first become involved in the <laughs> political aspects of... May I first say how, how, how happy I am and privileged to be with you here and how deeply I thank uh, this station for its kindness throughout the years. I've been on two or three others this time, but always have been... Uh, know I've had a welcome here, so I want to thank you. I would say, as I indicate in a recent book, which is now out, it will be on the stands pretty soon, Here I Stand, story of my life as I tell it, not too autobiographical. It began when I was a a little boy in Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> Strange to say. I was, uh, technically, this is the shaping of my views. A Negro boy born in Princeton, New Jersey, in a college town, uh, where the students mainly came from the Deep South. You know, Princeton and Princeton, Harvard, and Yale was the sort of the Southern University of the North, whether you know that or not. And so I grew up in Jersey in a rather Southern atmosphere. And so, and my father was a minister, and I was shaped against that background. Uh, technically, I entered the sort of the arena in the United States of fighting for social justice for my people in a concert when I was in a concert in St. Louis in 1947, in the Post-Dispatch, where I was singing uh, at the Keele Auditorium, uh, one of the big auditoriums there, and the NAACP asked me in St. Louis at that time to come on a picket line because Negro people could not even sit in the theater, which was just across the street. And so I grabbed a, 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 a banner, and lo and behold, I saw Walter Houston coming down the street. He was in the play. So Walter walked out and joined the picket line, too. <laughs> and a few nights later, when I was doing the concert, I said that I could not quite resolve the contradiction between uh, singing to an audience in St. Louis, where there was no segregation, of course, but, but also uh, the same people uh, had not, to my mind, were not fighting to see that my people could sit in the theater. It's been corrected since. And so I said that I was giving up my career, technically, for the moment, to enter the realm of the day-to-day -day struggle of the Negro people especially. And this was your first political uh, action? That, no, that was within this context. This is very important to get into context. My first actual, to come back to your question, was in London in 1933. It isn't very well known, which I clarify in the book, that I went to play showboat in London in 1928. Jerry Curran was with me and Oscar Hammerstein, and we had a great success. And then I did concerts in 1928, and I became domiciled and lived in England, domiciled there, paid my taxes there from 1928 until 1940, after the war began. Does this mean, Mr. Robeson, <clears throat> that you spent most of your time in England during this period? It meant that I came back now and then for concerts. I was here in Oakland many times, but I went back and spent most of my time in Great Britain. That's Why? The truth. I was there in 1930, played Othello. Uh, so again, this is extremely important. At that time, I said for the public to see that I felt, I, I would explain it today in this light. We understand why many of my people have come to Oakland, to the vicinity, from Mississippi and from the South. There have been migrations into California, I understand, today from everywhere. But for many years, as you know, uh, many of my people have left the South because the conditions in the North were better. Okay. I felt the pressure so much in 1928 
that instead of stopping in New York, I just went on to London. Mm. That clear. And did you feel no pressure there in I the racial no, sense? I felt no, nowhere near the pressure. Now, that does not mean that you haven't the background of the English colonies and so forth. Yes, but I the wonder. Pressure, that's what it was. But I say it's a difference between right here now and, say, let's say the Mississippi of Mr. Eastland. You understand? Yes. This is quite different. So America is quite different. There are great differences. So I found England that much more of a difference. That's all. I felt I found Canada that way. When I was playing Othello some years ago, when we got to Toronto, the cast said to me after a week, well, Paul, why are you so different? The, uh, the, the play is, is much deeper. You seem to be freer. I said, that's quite true. <laughs> that's quite true. I'm in a country where, she, where there is no, this is not a question. I'm on a theater, on a stage with many other white actors. This is not a problem here. So obviously I feel freer. That's right. I'm in a different, I don't, now I don't, uh, uh, feel the pressures that one would feel in the Deep South all the time, but it would interest you to know, and I've put it, that I, and I feel any Negro, if you were honest, would have to say that even in our democracy as at present, that he is never any one second unconscious of the fact that he is a black American or a colored American. He can never be unconscious of it in any part of the United States. Mr. Robeson, have you been back to England since the last war? Oh, yes, I was back in 49. Uh, the point I wanted to get at uh, is that when I was in England last year, I became aware of the large number of West Indians who are now That's about true. London, and I heard rather nasty overtones That's in right. my talks with uh, uh, some Englishmen that frightened me no question about, about a change that might take place in England. No, I, I, uh, again, if you want to go further, into nothing could be worse than South Africa. And I'm only saying, I put these things down. What is most important is that at the height, having lived many years out and enjoying the, 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 certainly the height of, 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 uh, of success in Great Britain, that I decided that I must come back to my own country to struggle in this and to make the sacrifices that I have. That's the most important thing in this regard. And I am here. Now, wait, would you... Yes. Spell this out again for me. Uh, you, you left England because England is not as attractive or oh, because no. you feel you have a greater mission in the United States? No, no, no. Let's don't get in that. There are many places in the world where personally it would be much easier to live than in the United States for an American Negro. In other words, and your commitment is definitely to what you feel you can do right. in this country. That's right. And Langston Hughes, in a book discussion before the book club in New York just a while ago, pointed out that every important Negro novelist not only Richard Wright, but many others, that, that the great 95% of them live in Paris or somewhere else in the world. Mm. Why? Because the pressures personally are much simpler. And yet in the foreword of your book that I have before me, you quote Frederick Douglass as saying, a man is worked on by what he works on. That's right. He may carve out his circumstances, but his circumstances will carve him out as well. That's right. Is this part of the reason why you feel that you must be back in the United States? I made this decision some years ago, and I say certainly that I spring essentially from here, uh, like you threw the other day about the Indians in North Carolina. If you recall, that was in Robeson County. Yes, I noticed that in the item. Now, this is a very interesting thing, which I point out in my book, and which explains a good deal, too, of how I feel. Now, I was born on the edge of Robeson County, and my father is a Robeson and was a Robeson because he was a slave, my own father, a slave of the Scottish Robesons who still control Robeson County in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. so, my, so I approach these problems from a very close point. And so, but I have a home and my people are tobacco workers and sharecroppers today 
on that on plantations in that county. But a part of that soil belongs to me. That, that's my roots. These are my roots in this country. On the other hand, also, I felt that... Uh, uh, so somewhere, the contributions that I had... Uh, could make some contribution from my background traveling about the world. However, I never expected, I am quite willing to say, that I would be restricted from traveling. <laughs> yes. Well, tell me, Mr. Robeson, was your commitment to the political scene then largely as a result of uh, your feeling about your own people or our own people, let's put it, yeah. uh, or did it have other overtones of I political first, conviction? I, and, first it starts uh, as an American Negro interested in my own people. The other great change is very constant in my mind. I was in the Welsh Valley. And the Welsh people sing very much like we do in, in the Negro people. Yes, I've heard Many them. of our songs, beautiful songs. And I was uh, one of the few outsiders who, who has sung at a Welsh Estithforth, their, their national festival which has gone on since the time of the Druids. And I went down in the mines with the workers. And they explained to me that, Paul, you may be successful here in England, but your people suffer like ours. We are poor people. And you belong to us. You don't belong to the, to the big weeks here in this country. And so I today feel as much at home in the Welsh Valley as I would in my own Negro section, any city in the United States. And I just did a broadcast by translating cable to the Welsh Valley a few weeks ago. And here was the first understanding that the struggle of the Negro people or of any people cannot be by itself. That is the human struggle. And so I was attracted then to, to uh, met many members of the Labour Party and my politics embraced also the common struggle of all oppressed peoples, including especially the working masses, specifically the laboring people of all the world. And that, that defines my philosophy. It's a joining one of uh, we are a working people, a laboring people, the Negro people. And there is a unity between our struggle and those of white workers in the South. I've had white workers shake my hand and say, Paul, we're fighting for the same thing. And so this defines my attitude toward socialism and toward many other things in the world. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land, that it should be a collective ownership in the interest of all. Is that a democratic socialism or...? I would have to be a democratic socialism. There are many ways, however, to, to struggle toward democracy, as I see that in a place like China, for example, today, the Soviet Union, many other places, or take our own problems uh, of Negroes. If we were free in the South tomorrow to carry our weight, to vote into everything, do we now look around and try to find the ten billionaires among our people? Would we attempt to build them up, or would we try to answer the needs of the great millions of our people? And so I see other ways of life, socialism, as trying to solve the problems of millions and tens of millions of peoples at once, in a way, instead of, the, instead of we would start from the individual to the masses, they start from the masses this way. Now, there are two ways, and there are difficulties each way. I, I have made the decision to join in a collective struggle, and the reason that my personal uh, sacrifices mean very little uh, in the struggle, in one way, when you see the children at Little Rock, what does, what does not giving a few concerts mean if you can make some other contribution? It's in that context. So nothing is perfect in the world. We're going toward it from different angles. I feel there's a great burden of proof on every society, on our own as well today. Mr. Robeson, some years ago, I was talking to a French member of the Communist Party, yes. and in the course of our discussion, he said to me, uh, 
You, Mr. Winkler, are a Jeffersonian Democrat. Yes. You can afford it in your rich uh, uh, land, yes. but in my land and in other lands, we must give up our freedom now to certain men in order to achieve freedom for our children in the future. This is an act of faith for me, he said, yes. giving up my freedom now. Uh, do you find yourself sympathetic with... Uh, I don't think that is... Uh, I would put it quite differently. No, nor do I think that's any part of, uh, of any socialist philosophy or communist philosophy, as far as I know, uh, that uh, we struck it during the, during the war under Roosevelt, for example. We had to give up many privileges. Uh, they're practically telling us we have to do that again. I mean, in any sort of a war economy, in England, England, for example, they have not eaten eggs almost for years and years because of certain pressures. And it seems to me in the socialist lands, the Soviet Union, China, and many places, that that's quite true. Uh, it's one thing to say today uh, that they don't have as, uh, as shining apparel as we do, but they have uh, made tremendous scientific progress and within a one generation, so to speak, within 40 years, have become one of the most powerful countries in the world. Now, they've done it by great sacrifices, and not by, to my mind, uh, uh, they feel that the country in one sense, the man in the street, uh, may not in every essence belong to him, but he feels it's much more his than, say, uh, I do in Charleston, South Carolina, when one Amer uh, southern American Negro explained to me that I was in the state of our great plantations. I said, are you sure about that, our great plantations? I don't feel that they're my plantations. Uh, but in one sense, some of the people in socialist lands feel that the country does belong to them in a, a real sense. Now, they are, they are uh, uh, and as far as the basic uh, uh, concept of uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat and so forth, isn't it? Uh, I would say, again, bringing it back to our own history, there was, as we know, a dictatorship of the North over the South in the days following the Civil War. When that di dictatorship was removed, uh, the, the, the colored people reverted practically into a kind of servitude. I could have conceived of, uh, of a dictatorship over the South for quite a longer period, from my point of view, quite, quite frankly. So this is understandable. Yes. In your book, Mr. Robeson, uh, Here I Stand, you have a chapter uh, entitled The Power of Negro Action. That's right. Uh, what are some of the specific acts <laughs> which you recommend and perhaps in the order of priority? Yeah. Well, I say any, in any Negro life, you would say that nobody, this is, seems to be rather startling to many of my friends. Nobody would be startled, say, with taking the vote of the power of Italian action or Polish action in Detroit or Catholic action in New York, and so forth. I mean, that the vote would be a block, and the power of the Negro vote in the North in certain states. This is one very important aspect. Uh, very clear. A kind of... Uh, uh, we have tremendous economic power in this, uh, in this land today. Uh, there should be tremendous support of Negro business, of Negro banks, and so forth, and loan associations, and so forth. But the prime thing is, is that I'm convinced that... Yes, Taking this last uh, uh, illustration of yours, have you not found that uh, as Negro bankers uh, 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 become richer, that they grow away from uh, your people? Uh, no, I don't. I, I know do they, they remain they, a part they, of they, they total remain, Negro action? There's no way for, as I said before, for any American Negro, however wealthy, however famous, to be anything at this period of our history, at some point, than an American Negro. 
if he oh, doesn't know, it, I can see if he doesn't a, know it, he he'll, he'll find it out. From a racial standpoint, yeah, Mr. Robeson, yeah. but from the political standpoint of socialism, which you were discussing a few mm-hmm. moments ago, surely a Negro capitalist, uh, if he had the opportunity, would undoubtedly behave uh, according to the lights of his own. Uh, he has to, but he. Business. But I know many of the most wealthy, and they often I feel that they don't help as much as they should. But he's forever conscious his children suffer the same things as the poor Negro's children. And at some point, he finds a way to uh, to help. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a little different even there. But that is... Uh, be- in other words, you feel it correct. cracks through yeah. in a but different I, but way. But I'm really not... Uh, what I'm trying to say is that, is that somewhere for our own dignity, I see that is Africa. Would you understand Ghana today unifying as a, with its own sort of, you know, nationalist strength. Is that clear? Yes. I feel in America, strange to say, especially in the South, that uh, that uh, even with all the goodwill of uh, white liberals in the country, that it's very important for the Negro people to know what they want and to unify to do it. Often in a very simple case of fighting segregation, one group of Negroes can be drawn aside because of political pressure, other pressures. We should unify too. We should unify. I feel there's got to be a unity in order to integrate. That's what I feel. I feel that we we just can't integrate as individuals. But isn't the example of Liberia, uh, for example, a sorry example, uh, as it said against Ghana? Yes, because that's a very simple. Firestone has taken care of that. It has been exploited to its hilt by Firestone rubber, if you don't know the facts. Yes, right. it still remains then right. an economic and question so has rather Ghana. than a racial so unity. Ghana, rather than a racial unity question, it remains an economic uh, uh, question no, in its no. fundamentals no, rather I think than the Ghana unity of also, the Negro people. Ghana has the, the, the unity of its own nation, same as Chinese or Indians, very close to India. India's just they have a a culture and a history that has its own national characteristics. But what will prevent Ghana from becoming another Liberia? That's the. Well, from Liberia today pressures. is completely controlled by Firestone, not by Africans. But I, but I, but I feel that Nkrumah is going to control the economy of Ghana, and at some time be strong enough to say to the European, either you sit here and acknowledge that we run our own country, like Nehru, or else you go. But I don't see the day when Liberia can tell Firestone to do that. Oh, they're quite different. They're quite different. Liberia is a complete vassal state of American capital, finance capital, without question. They have nothing to say, nothing whatsoever. What is your reaction to the passive resistance as practiced in Montgomery? I think there was a magnificent movement, and nobody can, I say, there's nothing as far as the general thing of a nonviolent solution to the problem. This is the, there could be no other solution within our, uh, within the frame of things today. I mean, this is a very important uh, contribution. Uh, uh, nobody could think of a violent solution unless the Negroes, unless somebody wanted to, 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 to ask somebody to be destroyed. I mean, that would be absurd. On the other hand, within that framework, I think that, that the Negro people have to be extremely militant and, and, and demand a little more than they are demanding today and to do a little more, not to do, to do, to do something, to do other things as well as pray, let me put it, as well as pray. Welcome back. And that was a rare archival interview uh, with uh, other than uh, Paul Robeson Sr. And that's going to conclude our program for today. And, of course, um, 
April 9th uh, will represent the 125th birthday of uh, Paul Leroy Robeson. And, of course, uh, we are commemorating him here at uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to have access to today's program, just go to our website at Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out our program uh, with uh, Detroit's own jazz guitarist, uh, Kenny Burrell, from a 1963 album entitled Midnight Blue. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.